0: So two things happened at 6pm and we were about to go live. So one, the internet cut out um, in our studio, a very unfortunate time. And two, Hugh Edwards has been announced um, as the person who we've been discussing ever since Saturday, the the previously unnamed star. A statement from his wife um, has made it clear that Hugh Edwards is the BBC star in question. And we're going to be showing you... Um, Some more information on that, some more information from Hugh Edwards' wife and discussing the implications of it. Of course, many other stories coming up for you this evening. Um, Dahlia, Gabriel, um, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Uh, It's been such a long time. I feel like I've been, it's only been like two weeks, but I feel like I've been away for ages. I was getting Berlin ready for you guys, um, for you and Moya and Sean, who are heading there for a festival soon. Um, so, yeah, I was just making sure everything was okay in Berlin.
0: Yeah, we're going to be speaking at Hull Festival after our trip to Glastonbury. Um, also coming up on tonight's show, and um, we've got some heartening footage of students at Edinburgh University showing solidarity with their lecturers. Um, the latest person to potentially be challenging Jeremy Corbyn in Islington North and a victory for workers in Brighton. On to our first story, Hugh Edwards has been announced as the person who has been the unnamed BBC host in the news ever since Friday. Of course, we've been over this already. The reason um, he was in the news was because of stories broken in The Sun. A young person's mother had got in contact with The Sun newspaper to say that this BBC star had been transferring money for pictures of a sexual nature. The Sun's angle was somewhat undermined when the young person in question, now 20, um, sent a letter via their lawyer to uh, sort of say, actually, everything written in the Sun is is, is nonsense. Nothing illegal has happened. Nothing untoward has happened. Since then, um, there have been a couple more allegations made from different people. I'm hoping we can go to the statement from Vicky Flint, who is Hugh Edwards' wife. In light of the recent reporting regarding the BBC presenter, I am making this statement on behalf of my husband, Hugh Edwards, after what have been five extremely difficult days for our family. I am doing this primarily out of concern for his mental well-being and to protect our children. Hugh is suffering from serious mental health issues. As is well documented, he has been treated for severe depression in recent years. The events of the last few days have greatly worsened matters. He has suffered another serious episode and is now receiving inpatient hospital care where he'll stay for the foreseeable future. Once well enough to do so, he intends to respond to the stories that have been published. To be clear, Hugh was first told that there were allegations being made against him last Thursday. In the circumstances and given Hugh's condition, I would like to ask that the privacy of my family and everyone else caught up in these upsetting events is respected. I know that Hugh is deeply sorry that so many colleagues have been impacted by the recent media speculation. We hope this statement will bring that to an end. Dali, this is very much breaking news. What are your thoughts on, on the revelation that this is Hugh Edwards? I imagine you, like many of our viewers, had some suspicion. It was pretty obvious from, from social media over the past few days. This information. About him having inpatient care for mental health difficulties is new. How do you respond to this?
1: I just think that what we've watched unfold over the past week uh, has been very disgusting um, for many reasons. There is a very serious conversation to be had about sexualized abuses of power, the ways in which, you know, sexual abuse, particularly between older people and much younger people, people who are underage, how that uh, is systemically enabled in contexts where you have very hierarchical situations and you have people with a lot of power. That's why you know, institutions like the BBC, like the Catholic Church, these kinds of institutions are the ones that we frequently see these kinds of scandals at, it's because it's an issue of power and sex is often weaponized uh, as a tool of power. That is not what this conversation has been about. This conversation has been about this very serious context and these conversations that we've been having, you know, in the wake of Me Too, etc., cetera, being metabolized as tabloid gossip. Uh, it's very concerning for, num- for a number of reasons. First of all, because the way that the tabloid, mediates these kinds of conversations is not as the nuanced and, you know, safeguarding angles that we need and the kind of serious conversations about power and what kind of structural change needs to happen in order to stop this from taking place in these institutions, how to make these institutions more accountable, less hierarchical, et cetera, et cetera. But also, but it takes that and it metabolizes it into this guessing game and this kind of very salacious gossipy conversation that really is not addressing any of the key issues that we that we need to talk about. Uh, I also think it's very concerning because we are conflating what is from my understanding the allegation is that Hugh Edwards allegedly paid for content on a sex worker website That is not something that I believe should be criminalized. And I don't think it should be held in the same conversation as serious abuses of power and grooming. Uh, when When we have these kind of like moralizing, criminalizing conversations around sex work, that ultimately deeply impacts the sex workers. What have we achieved over the past several days? We haven't had the serious conversation about the still ongoing issue of sex and power in institutions like the BBC and media, Hollywood, et cetera. We have engaged in this really gross kind of like digging up of people's private lives and we've hospitalized someone. So ultimately, I think that It's been a pretty ghastly thing um, to watch that, you know, The Sun has been the ringleader of The Sun, which is the same outlet that in a completely different context would be more than happy to cover for someone who is abusive or would be more than happy to talk about, you know, cancel culture and, you know, Me Too going too far. So it just really depresses me that off the back of, you know, The fact that we are finally having conversations about sexual harassment and sexual violence in the workplace or you know in and its relationship to power how prevalent it is across society that the primary way that this is being refracted is through irresponsible tabloid gossip.
0: In terms of the power imbalance Dalia I think that's almost a another interesting part of this story because with um, Philip Schofield of course the person he was alleged to have had this sexual relationship with was a junior staffer at ITV so there clearly was a power imbalance in in that situation because this was someone who was very very high up in an industry and someone who was quite low down in the same industry in fact in the same workplace here there's no suggestion that Hugh Edwards who we now know is is the person was having these interactions with anyone who worked at the BBC let alone worked in or, or even worked in journalism so th- th- this kind of does seem completely separate from from his work it's not actually clear how much of an abuse of power there even was.
1: You can make an argument that someone who with the celebrity power of Hugh Edwards is always kind of in, has a position of power, but then, you know, is the argument that then he can't have sex with anyone ever? No, (laughs) like, but, you know, you could make an argument there is a power dynamic in terms of the age difference, but, you know, we're not, that's not the same as a certifiable abuse of power. Like the question of age gaps in relationships is, is a contested question that different people have different opinions on. Even though I have been trying to do like so much concrete research on this to really try and fit because there's been so many parallel stories and rumors emerging. And I've been really careful to try and be accurate. But because of the, you know, the way that this kind of stuff gets talked about on social media. But more importantly, the way the tabloid media use this as gossip fodder um, is partly why. We're having these very muddled conversations, and for me, that's not what we've been trying to unpack here. You know, this question of you know what what does power mean? How does this shape our relationships? What is the responsibility of someone who holds the kind of social and cultural power that someone like a Hugh Edwards would? That's not the conversation we were having. What we were having was innuendo, implicit, you know, implicit stuff, kind of speculation. I feel like the implication was very much that this he, it was a, a young man. I don't know if that, I don't know why I think that. Maybe that's just me misreading into something. But if that is the case, I feel like the fact that that's been heavily implied is itself, I think, also really deeply concerning um, to me. And, you know, The Sun and the tabloids have a very long track record of outing men and causing a huge amount of trauma as a result of that Um, whether that's actually what's happened in this case i don't know but i think it speaks to a broader tabloid culture of how people's lives get ruined and broader implications on society um, get kind of brushed under the rug for just you know a good story that will flog a lot of newspapers now but will be tomorrow's chip paper
0: Let's go to a comment from the Metropolitan Police, because obviously I think lots of people's position on this has been, well, if a law has been broken, um, then there is a serious problem here and it is in the public interest that this should be brought to light and the person be named. And lots of people have said, well, if the law hasn't been broken, then why are we even talking about this? Well, the Metropolitan Police have uh, said this. So this is via Sky News in a statement. The Met said detectives from its specialist crime command have now concluded their assessment and have determined there is no information to indicate that a criminal offense has been committed. The force added, in reaching this decision, they have spoken to a number of parties, including the BBC and the alleged complainant and the alleged complainant's family, both via another police force. There is no further police action. As such, the Met has advised the BBC it can continue with its internal investigation. So presumably what we can take from that is that there were not pictures of a sexual nature which were sent by anyone who was under 18. Or at least, I mean, I'm not an expert in the law on this. So I'm not sure w- w- what it means if someone who was under 18 sends the picture, say they were 17, but the person thought they were 18. I don't know what the law is there. But clearly, the Met have had a look at this case and said, no law has been broken. Um, as far as I understand, that's only concerning um, the case of this first, well, complainant. I mean, even you know the, the young person didn't necessarily complain. But the uh, the young person in question and the mother who certainly did complain, I don't think the police have yet looked at, you know, the issue of potential lockdown breaking. So maybe there'll be a fixed penalty notice down the line. I've got no idea. Um, but in any case, the, the real sting um, seems to have been taken out of this. If, if the main allegation, which was the one which was in the, which was on, which was in the sun over the weekend, that seems to, Uh, be much less scandalous than it was initially made out. All right, moving on. There's been more bombshell news from the Bank of England today. Their twice yearly financial stability report has been released and it's grim reading for mortgage holders. This chart from the Bank of England shows how much monthly mortgage payments are expected to increase over the next 3 years. The first column shows that by the end of this year, nearly 2 million households will be paying up to 200,000 pounds extra per month. By the end of 2026, that rises to nearly 4 million. The second column shows that a million households will pay between 200 and 500 pounds more per month by the end of this year, rising to over 2 million households by the end of 2026. Um, The last column shows that around 250,000 will pay more than 500 pounds extra every month by the end of the year. But by the end of 2026, that rises to 1 million households. These figures are based on projected future interest rate rises and also the number of fixed term deals coming to an end. But mortgage rates are already the highest they've been in 15 years, as this BBC chart shows. And what's striking is how quickly they've risen over the space of a year. It's bad news for mortgage holders and bad news for renters too. That's because buy-to-let landlords will try to pass those costs on to tenants or sell up all together. And the bank also expects a wider impact on the economy. If borrowers are paying more on their debts, they'll cut back on spending, which weakens the economy. There's also a threat of mass defaults, putting parts of the banking sector at risk. But the bank struck an optimistic note too, well, kind of, saying this. Although the proportion of income that UK households overall spend on mortgage payments is expected to rise, it should remain below the peaks experienced in the global financial crisis and in the early 1990s. Um, So it won't be as bad as the biggest financial disaster in living memory, so in 2008 or the 1990s housing crash, which led to around 350,000 repossessions. In Prime Minister's questions, Deputy Leader Angela Rayner began with a history lesson for Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden, taking him back to the 1990s.
2: Thank you, Mr Speaker. And I know you're a keen historian, so I looked up the last time a Prime Minister missed two sessions in a row (laughs) with other engagements, which was March 1996. And I'm very proud to be filling the boots of Lord John Prescott, but I think it's safe to say he's no hassle time, Mr Speaker. Why is it John Prescott asked that in Tory Britain, tens of thousands of families are facing repossession, negative equity, and homelessness? And can he tell us, 27 years later, why I'm having to ask the same question? Deputy yeah. Prime Minister.
3: Well, clearly the Right Honourable Lady did not listen to my previous comments. The Prime Minister is at NATO. Of course, that wouldn't be a problem if she'd had her way. Her old boss wanted to abandon Ukraine, abolish the army, and withdraw from NATO. And he certainly wouldn't be going to any summit, Mr Speaker. And and when it... And when it comes comes to house building, I will take no lectures from the party opposite on home ownership. My parents would not have been able to buy their own home if it were not for Margaret Thatcher and the reforms introduced by her government, and this government is building on those with record house building.
0: Record house building. Now, that's not what the Home Builders Federation say. So, in February, they warned that new housing in England will fall to its lowest level since the Second World War. That came after the government dropped its compulsory building target of 300,000 new homes a year. Um, Let's go back to that exchange from PMQs.
2: What matters is what people feel every single day at the moment, who are going to work and can't afford their mortgage, can't afford their rent and can't afford their bills because of this Conservative government. (laughs) 55,000 more children without a permanent address today compared to when they took office 13 years ago. We've gone from a Labour cabinet focused on tackling child poverty to Tory ministers who won't even admit the problem. Yes. Yes. Just like the question time in March 1996, they can only offer excuses and not answers. Lord John Prescott said to Lord Michael Heseltine that day, how can the right honourable gentleman be so complacent in the face of sheer misery created by his government's policies? 27 years on. Why are we asking the exact same thing? Yeah. A
4: little bit more if we carry on. Come on, Deputy well,
3: Mr Speaker. I know there's a reshuffle coming up on the other side, but this audition for for John Prescott's old job is just getting a little bit hackneyed. It is this government that has lifted 400,000 children out of poverty. The party opposite, I hear the right lady. Claiming to be the party of working people, but under their policies people can't even get to work They support just-stop oil protesters blocking our roads They support their union paymasters stopping our trains and of course they support the hated ULEs stopping cars across our capital While Conservatives get Britain moving, Labour are standing in everyone's way.
0: So ULEZ isn't hated the ultra-low emissions zone, and polling on that from Londoners. I mean, sometimes if you ask the whole country whether they back ULEZ, people tend to say no. But if you ask people where it's actually in place, like in London, people say yes. People generally prefer to live in places which don't have lots of toxic emissions in them that give their kids asthma. Um, So I don't know where he's coming from on that. Dalia, the Tories, I suppose they try and bring up Just Stop Oil at any um, possible opportunity, but it's going to be a million people paying £500 more a month on their mortgages, which is going to be the real problem for whichever government is in power or whichever party is in power.
1: The Tories really, if this is any indicator of how they're going to go into the next general election, they should be very, very concerned. And I actually, because it's just like, first of all, in no way have they supported just have have labor supported just up oil talking about union you know that his union warlords of the labor party unite doesn't even fund the labor party anymore like the labor party couldn't do more to alienate itself from trade unions and social movements. so the idea that that's where and they basically kicked jeremy corbyn out of the party so there's nothing like you can't for that to be your attack dog for the Labour Party is kind of nonsensical um but the Conservatives have a right to be incredibly concerned because I actually think what is happening to mortgage holders is the political kind of significance it's almost like a political bellwether for when I think the Conservatives will make a calculation on when to call a general election because ultimately uh it's clear that the Conservatives are going to lose the next general election. I don't think it's recoverable, the damage that they have done. Uh, The question is, how bad is it going to be? Because without mortgage holders, you go from a loss, but a loss that can look somewhat dignified after 10 years of being in power, more than 10 years of being in power, versus losing basically your entire base of which mortgage holders are obviously a key part of that, particularly mortgage holders who aren't also landlords. So mortgage holders who are just paying the mortgage on their property that they that they live in. So I think that it's really going to be incredibly difficult for them to, to claw back from that. For a long time, I thought that they would be calling a general election really soon so that they could call it before this really hit mortgage holders and could kind of look like they're on a path to recovery. But now I think they're probably going to wait until this like somewhat evens out before they call a general election. But what I'm saying is basically looking at what happens to mortgage holders, I think is a is a very good timeline suggestion for when we can expect a general um general election uh, and you know I'm no fan of Keir Starmer so you know it's not I'm not exactly looking at the prospects of a labor government filled with hope you know I'm taking west streetings cue and having zero hope in it um but I do think that if this is what their attack lines against the labor party are going to be they're in for a real like they're in for a real rough ride um at the next general election which I don't think is actually going to be that far away
0: Let's move on to our next story. Theresa May is no friend of migrants. In her six years as Home Secretary from 2010 to 2016, she offered the hostile environment and sent vans around the country telling undocumented migrants to go home or face arrest. However, even Theresa May thinks the government's latest plans have gone too far. She made this intervention in a debate on the illegal migration bill.
4: Imagine the young woman. It could be a young man, but most likely, given the numbers to be a young woman, who's persuaded by a male friend to come over here to the UK for what it says will be a great job and a wonderful life together. Maybe she thinks they're in love. Maybe she thinks it's a way of getting out of debt that she's in. Maybe she wants to, get to uh, uh, leave a difficult family relationship, an abusive relationship. She comes with him, probably on illegal documents, but unknown to her that they're illegal. Um, And as soon as she gets here, she's put into prostitution and he benefits financially from that. Forced into sexual exploitation, living in appalling conditions, not paid, she is in slavery. She manages after several months, maybe after years, to escape. Under the Modern Slavery Act, she could be provided with the support needed to get her life back and uh, enable the police to identify and persecute the perpetrators. Under this bill, the government's response would be quite different. She would get no support. The government's response would be, we don't care that you've been in slavery in the UK. We don't care that you've been in a living hell. We don't care that you have been the victim of crime. We do care that you came here illegally, even though you probably didn't know it. So we're going to detain you and send you home, even if it is into the arms of the very people who trafficked you here in the first place, or we want to send you to Rwanda. No thought for whether the young woman would get her life back, and critically no thought for catching and prosecuting perpetrators. And the evidence of the police is clear. If you want victims to provide evidence to bring slave drivers to justice, the victims need time, they need support, and they need to be here.
0: The Modern Slavery Act was introduced into law by Theresa May in 2015. It means that at the moment, asylum seekers arriving in the UK are referred to the Home Office under the Act if first responder organisations, so that's something like a charity, local authorities or home office workers, if they suspect the asylum seeker is at risk of being put into modern Slavery Now, anyone thought to be a victim can't be removed from the UK under any circumstances for at least 30 days. And that, of course, runs counter to the government's illegal migration bill, which seeks to treat all so-called illegal migrants exactly the same. So, say, if you didn't come here with documents, you will be treated the same as each other, which basically means you've got no rights at all. Um, Now, the Modern Slavery Act also um, requires the government to provide support to victims. But the government blocked every Lord's Amendment that would have kept modern slavery protections for asylum seekers in law. Instead, border workers will be given mere guidance about how to deal with potential victims of slavery. Um, It's all pretty grim. The government did make some minor concessions though in response to pressure from some backbench MPs. Pregnant women will now only be able to be detained for 72 hours. The government wanted to make it 28 days and unaccompanied children will be able to be bailed out after detention after eight days as opposed to the 28 days in the original bill. The government's bill will now go back to the Lords. Dahlia, Theresa May, no friend of immigrants. I mean, she was a very draconian Home Secretary, I think, when it came to migration laws. Um, but she made a good defence of the Modern Slavery Act and this current Tory government trashing it.
1: Her analysis here is on its own correct, yes. This is a change, and it's a very worrying change uh, that basically means that people who are brought here under very exploitative circumstances, such as the one that she uh, outlined, will have even less access to support than they otherwise would have. What frustrates me is that I feel that this is just Theresa May trying to rehabilitate her legacy, to sanitize her legacy in relationship to the horrors that we are seeing coming out of Downing Street today, um, you know, in this in this government. Theresa May invented the playbook uh, that the illegal migration bill is based on Uh, the Modern Slavery Act, even though it is supposed to be about ending exploitation, ending, you know, as, you, as she outlined, you know, this, those kind of circumstances, of course, you know, we need protections in place. But the Modern Slavery Act was actually fundamentally about beginning this process of justifying the strengthening of border controls, uh, you know, heightening of immigration raids. She talks about this idea as if, you know, a few years ago a person in, as in the story that she described would, you know, be saved by the Modern Slavery Act, if you talk to any of those first-line responders, you talk to anyone, you know, Calayan, uh, voices of domestic workers, people who this is supposed to protect, you will know that things like the National Referring Mechanism, you know, the architecture of the Modern Slavery Act, in reality, has always been deeply accessible and deeply difficult to navigate um, for the people who it's supposed to help in reality what it was much more about was about beginning this this kind of leg this this tradition this kind of um approach of selling stronger border controls that are ultimately harmful to all migrants and um, particularly the most vulnerable under the guise of it allegedly helping victims in reality it actually never did that and it laid the foundations Um, for something like the illegal migration bill. Um, So for me, this is really just Theresa May trying to rehabilitate um, her reputation um, and using the kind of even more obnoxious and awful and harmful iterations of her own policies that we're seeing today in order to do that.
0: Let's move on to our next story. University workers across the country have been taking part in a marking boycott. It's part of the university and colleges union's long-running industrial dispute with their employers over pay and conditions. Workers who are members of UCU across 145 institutions stopped assessing work and marking exams on the 20th of April this year. And the union says they won't start again until they get an improved offer from employers. The impact on students has, of course, been pretty big. Hundreds of thousands have been affected with their graduations being delayed or else graduating without having their marks. Now, it's sure to be incredibly frustrating. My thoughts go out to students who have been uh, inconvenienced by this. But luckily, students appear to be keeping their anger directed in the right places. Um, At the University of Edinburgh yesterday, this happened during a graduation ceremony. Laura.
4: Guys, settle down. Please just re- remember that this is a special day for lots of people and, you know, we're... we're, we're um, Well, let let me go into my speech, but I'd be grateful if you could just be respectful of everything and everybody here today. We've come large distances, and we're also uh, celebrating uh, a truly inspirational honorary graduate today. So, if we could just keep it um, professional, that would be good.
0: That same ceremony one student had this to say about the boycott.
2: I a degree in my hand.
3: Instead, I hold an apology letter filled with platitudes and a list of courses with the letters to these... And the
4: list of courses with the letters TBC instead of a mark next to them.
2: It would not be right to stand here and not acknowledge the hard work of staff who have been fighting for no more than the bare minimum.
3: Fair treatment and fair pay.
0: The boycott is what's called action short of a strike. That means refusing to do work that isn't part of your contract. But some universities seem to be taking punitive measures against their staff. Ben Witten works at SOAS in London. Last month, he posted this on social media. My employer SOAS stole my wages again, but even more this month. This time, deductions do include some strike days, but most of what they call strike is a marking boycott. I did research, writing, admin, email, meetings with staff and students, at least 95% of my job. So this person saying they did at least 95% of their job, but they've got nearly all of their income um, taken off due to strikes. His second tweet says, this is the majority of my gross monthly salary. They are stealing despite my hard work. Our employer SOAS wants to break us as a union as workers, and is showing how little they care about us. The work we do, all the students we teach you overwhelmingly oppose the deductions. I think as you saw um, in that video from Edinburgh, it didn't look like it was just a minority of students disrupting that event. Seemed pretty universal from the part of the, the audience that we could make out there. Um, UCU is asking for either a 12% pay increase or the RPI measure of inflation plus 2%, whichever is higher. That's in the face of a 25% real terms pay cut since 2009. They're also demanding the easing of excessive workloads and the end of precarious zero hour and temporary contracts. There are 90,000 university workers on insecure contracts, enough to fill Wembley Stadium. This is what UCU General Secretary Joe Grady had to say about the marking boycott.
5: This is a situation that nobody who enters education ever wants to be in. Um, but it is a situation that can be avoided. It's a situation that employers have been warned about. Um, and, you know, we have negotiations with employers on Friday. It is something that could end, you know, just as swiftly as it began. If employers decided, decided to use some of the £40 billion of reserves that they have in the sector to give staff a proper pay rise. Student support across the UK... Has been absolutely outstanding. I'm sure you and your viewers are seeing what I'm seeing, you know, protests, taking over graduation ceremonies, media work, petitions, and much, much more that you know we're not even seeing on social media. And I can only salute and really kind of thank students for that solidarity. You know, they they may never really know how much it means to UCU members. And this is against a backdrop where, you know, many of those students suffering from the impact of the employer's refusal to pay our staff properly to be worrying whether or not you're going to get a degree for months of warning but still supporting your lecturers and the other staff and I think the reality is that you know um, employers thought that they could bully staff and they thought that the dispute would over by will be over by now they thought that we wouldn't get student support Um, They thought that we wouldn't maintain coverage of the boycott, you know, in the media. Uh, And they were wrong on all fronts. And I think what we have now is an employer that is so far down the track that rather than hold their hands up and put a better offer on the table and settle things, they're like digging in via, you know, what are a really, quite frankly, weird set of um, press releases that we see from the employer, like it's quite desperate Um, And yeah, I think they're just utterly confused as to why staff and students have remained so strong because students really do understand that the conditions that we work in have a huge impact on the conditions that they learn in. We've seen widespread punitive measures from a number of employers. Um, The first word that comes to mind when I think of the employers deploying these tactics is vindictive. And to be clear, that is mild. It's a sign of desperation. We know we have them under pressure. They know student support is high, even though, you know, some sections of the media are asking questions. We've had some members losing 50 percent or even 100 percent of their pay. And sometimes that's because they aren't performing what is a a tiny part of their task, you know, 5 percent of their working week. Um, It's clear it's an out and out attempt at union busting. Every trade union in the UK should be alarmed about this. And um, we're going to be taking a motion to TUC Congress in September on this matter. It's intimidation. It's their plan to crush union members. And they have failed. You know, let me let me put on record right here. The members I speak to are more determined than ever to see this through.
0: That was Joe Grady. Dahlia, I know this is an issue close to your heart. You work in the university sector. I mean, are you currently on a marking boycott?
1: So, I'm not teaching at the moment, so I'm not on a marking boycott because I don't have anything to mark um but I fully support everyone, all of my colleagues and comrades who are uh yeah, I mean, this has been incredibly heartwarming to see it's kind of the definition of of solidarity, and it shows how solidarity is the only thing that we actually have because you have to remember that not just in this particular dispute, but going back to. The first steps to marketize higher education, which was kind of exacerbated by the tripling of fees, where there was an active encouragement from particularly the government to frame education as a commodity uh, you know, um, students as consumers who are purchasing a commodity, uh, and that commodity only has value if it can be translated into particular kinds of economic value. Now, obviously, yes, we know that getting a job and going to university, those are connected, and that we know we want to prepare our students to enter into the professional world. But that's not what education is exclusively about. And as part of this narrative to try and make students into consumers and to make education into this commodity, there has been a concerted effort during this dispute to try and make students see educators and lecturers as their enemy and to say, you know, you've paid for this commodity and it's because of them that you are not getting return on your investment or whatever. But luckily, the students are smart enough to see through that and to see that actually the conditions of their lecturers and of their educators is intimately tied to the conditions of the education they're receiving and therefore the thing that they are going out into the world and being, you know, a person, whether it's in the workplace, but also just a person in society. You know, education is a social good. It's not just an economic good. And I'm really glad to see that the majority of students, um, at least from those videos, are able to see through this very thinly veiled attempt to divide and conquer um, lecturers and educators and students, particularly through this language of you know, consumer consumerism. Um, but I also think it's incredibly important to see students doing this because a lot of the ways in which these kind of ideas that lecturers shouldn't be allowed to fight back and the lecturers shouldn't be allowed to organize in their workplace like every other worker is because, you know, this is what students want. You know, student satisfaction is everything. We know from our students that student satisfaction is intimately tied to their lecturers having good working conditions, not being overworked, not being underpaid, having a decent pension having decent, decent social benefits. These are the things that actually make students satisfied with their education, not, you know, ramming through a deal that doesn't ultimately work um, for the people who make the university, which is, you know, the workers.
0: Let's go to our next story. Jeremy Corbyn has made clear he will be standing as an independent in Islington North, and that creates a challenge for Keir Starmer. Who should Labour stand against him? Well, one high-profile former Corbynite looks set to throw his hat in the ring. It's Paul Mason. Yes, the maker of bizarre mind maps connecting China and Avara Media and Britain's black community appears to think he stands a chance of beating Corbyn on his home turf. The Times reports this. Labour councillors from Corbyn's constituency are reluctant to challenge the incumbent who said last month, quote, I am proud to have been the MP for Islington North since 1983. If the people want me to continue, then my services are available, unquote. Mason, however, is understood to be willing to take on the former Labour leader. He has told friends that he has not ruled out standing to replace a man whose leadership he once championed. And Paul Mason has already tried and failed to be the Labour candidate in constituencies such as Stretford in Greater Manchester, Mid and South Pembrokeshire in South Wales and Sheffield Central. So a big tour of the UK. Um, when asked by the Times if he would now try for Islington North, Mason offered no denial, instead saying this, as a keen supporter of the Starmer Project, I'm still hoping to stand for selection to contribute my political experience to Labour in the next parliament. But right now, I'm concentrating on getting our free brilliant by-election candidates into Westminster on the 20th of July. So Paul Mason is sort of speaking as if he's already in the shadow cabinet. Our free brilliant candidate. You you're at the moment make you just a journalist, right? Our free, brilliant candidate. Um DALI, what do you make of this news? Do you think Paul Mason could beat Jeremy Corbyn? Oh my God.
1: This like it's just Every time Paul Mason comes up now, I just want to be like, I told you all. I feel like I've been since 2015, I've been like, this guy is not okay. Um, and he's definitely gotten worse though. I think even by my low expectations, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Um, but let's like look behind what this really is. I don't think that Starmer has made a concrete offer or even a non-concrete offer, or maybe even had a conversation with Paul Mason about whether or not he could potentially run um, as the Labour candidate uh, in Jeremy Corbyn's constituency. What this is, I think, you know, my suspicion, whenever you have things in the press like this that are quoting, you know, friends of or sources close to a particular person more often than not it's just the person briefing the press with a particular message they want to get out there so for me I think the audio I think it's two things this this announcement one it's probably trying to test the waters a little bit to see how the response will be but I think that's kind of the minor aim of this of this story I think the more major aim is Paul Mason trying to Get Starmer's attention. You know, I don't know if maybe since uh Starmer has won the won the Labour leadership, maybe he's not been picking up the phone as much to Paul Mason, and this is the only way he can get his attention. Uh, but it's him trying to cultivate a story to manifest essentially um, what he wants, which is to run um as a as a candidate in in Corbyn's constituency. I'm not, I don't think that, I mean, I don't know what Starmer's strategy will be. I don't know what strategy would work in Islington because I. it's very difficult, I think, to break that very deep constituency bond that we know Corbyn has with his constituents. So I don't know exactly what the right strategy is. But because we haven't heard anything at all um, from the Labour Party and Generally, the relationship between Paul Mason and the Labour leadership hasn't been, at least from what I can see, particularly strong. I don't think much is going to come of this.
0: And we've got some other Labour news for you. Anna Turley has been selected as the Labour candidate in red car. So that's the Brexit voting seat she held before Labour lost it in the 2019 general election. Um, Turley, you might remember, was one of the most aggressively anti-Corbyn MPs. And after losing her seat, she became a consultant to the gambling industry. Now, I'm mainly telling you this because I want to show you this dire article I came across today um, when researching this story. It's an article for the New Statesman, a magazine, which, as you can see in the top left corner, asks us to support 110 years of independent journalism. Um, look a bit further down the screen, though, and you can see this beacon of independent journalism has published an advertorial paid for by the Betting and Gambling. Council. And this advertorial, which looks pretty much like any other article on the New Statesman website, is by former Labour MP Anna Turley, now a paid-up gambling lobbyist, telling us, the reader, that regulating the gambling industry would lose Labour votes in the red wall. The article includes passages like this. In my experience as the former Labour MP for Redcar, red wall voters are savvy, They are aspirational. They believe in their own skill and enterprise, personal responsibility and freedom. They are proud of their local areas, their identity and their culture, and they don't want to be treated like children. That's why I was fascinated recently to read research commissioned by the betting standards body who I work for, the Betting and Gaming Council, which asked Public First to carry out a series of 20 focus groups, mainly in some of the red wall seats that flipped from Labour to Tory in 2019 and will prove pivotal at the next election to explore attitudes betting. Now, as you can guess, in these focus groups paid for by the gambling industry and written up by one of their employees, the voters were apparently very much against gambling reform. Now, I'm a little suspicious the questions might have been leading though. This is from Turley's piece. According to the government, the rate of problem gambling in Britain is 0.5% and has been stable for 20 years. Several people in focus groups did know someone who had a problem with gambling. Rightly, they felt that problem gamblers, or those who are more vulnerable and more at risk, needed to be targeted for them to get greater help and support. But when it was put to them that under proposed affordability checks being considered by the Gambling Commission, everyone, even if they are one of the overwhelming majority of people who bet perfectly, safely and responsibly, may soon be subject to an arbitrary limit on what they can spend before being asked to submit paychecks and bank statements, many Red Wall voters who took part in the research were outraged. Well, when you phrase it like that, it's no surprise that focus group attendees will be outraged. If you say something is going to be arbitrary, would you like an arbitrary limit on what you can spend? Well, no, I wouldn't like an arbitrary limit. Well, what about one that's targeted to only uh, get people who are likely to be problem gamblers? Now, that wasn't asked because it's not you know, not talked about in this article, is it? Do you want something that's arbitrary and affects everyone? Well, no, uh, but that's that's because you called it arbitrary and said it would affect. The lobbyists, Stalia, are back in the in the, in the the driving seat for the, the Labour Party. Should we uh, celebrate? This is the grown-ups back in charge?
1: Yes, this is what they mean when they say putting the grown-ups back in charge. They mean, and when they say things like a safe pair of hands, you know, grown-ups in the room, what they mean by this is someone who could be trusted to maintain the interests and, you know, guard and keep the interests of the already very powerful. That's what they mean. Uh, This is an absolutely disgusting story. Uh, I think, I don't think I've, and this is really saying something, I don't think I've seen in a long time a more cynical and frankly cruel uh, weaponization of a reductive idea of working class identity than this. It's so interesting to me that she says, oh, working class people don't like to be patronized. They don't like to be treated like children, Well, you are treating them like children and you are condescending working class people by thinking they're not going to figure out that there's a relationship between you being a lobbyist for this industry and you writing an article like this and you advocating for the gambling industry in this way. Um, There is no social good that comes um, from gambling being easily accessible, particularly online gambling is identified as a particularly predatory form of this industry. It's, you know, got very low barrier to entry. It's very addictive. Uh, You know, the use of algorithmic technologies to make it very addictive are deployed in predatory ways. We know that working class people are targeted. We know that working class people are far more likely to lose out a lot when it comes to online gambling. And who wins from that? The gambling industry. Um, so there's no social good that comes out of something like online gambling being unregulated and very easily accessible. Um, the only people that win, you know, the only reason that this is that we even have, we don't even have these regulations on this industry is because the gambling industry is incredibly lucrative. There's a reason that the phrase the house always wins exists. It's because it is literally just an extractive, predatory industry that has you know these incredible you know returns that capitalists could only dream of. Um, so that's what's going on here. And I think to to appropriate and to to weaponize this blanket and very frankly patronizing idea of working class identity in order to shill for an industry that is known to be particularly predatory on working class communities or working class people um, is disgusting. Um, frankly. And the fact that this is a Labour Party politician makes it all the more depressing.
0: Let's finish on a good news story. Pub workers in Brighton have won compensation after their boss sacked them for taking strike action. Navara's Labour movement correspondent, Polly Smythe, wrote about the story today on navaramedia.com. We can tell you more about it now. The sacking of the bar workers after their strike ballot led to the landlords of the St. James Tavern being accused of union busting. And after strike days were announced, remaining workers were subject to harassment by the employers. But a court ordered the bosses to pay the wages of all the workers they'd sacked, covering the time from their sacking until a judicial mediation took place last month. There, the landlords agreed to pay compensation for the harassment. The union representing the workers, UVW, say that the total the landlords ultimately paid out was over £110,000. We love to see it. And more details are in that article, and they're up on, or the article is up on NavarraMedia.com, link to which is in the description below. Of course, if you want to support our journalism and ability to cover stories like this, we want to break more news stories, especially on topics like this. You can go to NavarraMedia.com slash support. Um, Very briefly on this story, Dali, we're often railing against landlords, the type that sort of own properties and rent them out. And we don't normally bang on about pub landlords. But in this case, it does seem like they were very much in the wrong.
1: Yeah, and I just want to shout out again, like I'm one of Polly's biggest fans because I think that it's so great that, you know, Navarra is in a position to be able to fund and subsidize someone to have their ear to the ground of union struggles always. You know, what we have in this country is a newspaper media, you know, a media that will only go and talk to to unions and talk to organized workers uh, when something really big happens. And more often than not, they'll have a very skewed representation of the dispute. So the fact that, you know, we can have that in that Navara puts resources towards industrial relations journalism. It's actually one of the things that I am most proud of Navarra um, for doing. So, yeah, like big up Polly. Um, and you guys should all keep her, like follow her and keep your eye on her on her articles, because this is really it's really important that we have this ongoing relationship with the union movement and, you know, progressive media.
0: I wholly agree. Thank you, Dalia, for joining me tonight. And thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. It'll be me again tomorrow. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarra slash support.